1: the nation magazine this is start making sense political talk without the boring parts i'm john Weiner. today we'll talk about the anti-trump ilhan omar she just endorsed bernie for president david perry has spent the last few months with her in minneapolis we'll have his report also 10 minutes without trump pico Iyer will talk about japan where he lives for half of every year he says it's really different from the united states and from what people think it's like but first we all know trump got famous on tv with the apprentice but how many of us ever watched the apprentice nobody i know but reality tv was a key force in making trump president For that story, we turn to Tom Carson. He's a longtime writer on pop culture and politics. He won two National Magazine Awards during his time as Esquire's screen columnist. He's also been a staff writer at the Village Voice and the LA Weekly, and he's written for the Atlantic, Rolling Stone, and the American Prospect. Now he writes for Book Forum. He's also the author of the novels Gilligan's Wake and Daisy Buchanan's Daughter. We reached him today in Louisville. Tom Carson, welcome to the program.
2: Oh, thank you for having me. Well,
1: don't all politicians create images for themselves on TV? Trump is exceptionally good at it, but is he really different?
2: Oh, absolutely. You know, politicians, some of them are good on TV, some of them are bad on TV, but it's just a necessary part of the job not their main interest. Trump is really a pure creature of TV. The guy who plays the role of Donald Trump on TV and on God knows on Twitter is the only Donald Trump there is. One reason that political writers had such a hard time getting a handle on him is that, well, I, I think it's something you and I both know because we've had one foot in each world. But most political journalists know nothing about popular culture and they think it's really irrelevant to understanding how the country works or how politicians work. And so somebody like Trump, who really is the ultimate Donald Trump impersonator, sort of has no other reality. Political writers just have the wrong skill set to come to grips with him. It's not part of a world they understand. They had no way of understanding that The Apprentice was a prefiguration of how the Trump presidency works. It's sort of a
1: cliche that Trump runs the White House as if it were a reality TV show. But there's something to that, isn't there?
2: You know, one of the wonderful things in this book, Audience of One, by the uh, New York Times TV critic, James Paniwazak, is that, of course, he has watched The Apprentice and he has watched a lot of reality TV. And like an awful lot of culture critics, he knows a lot more about politics than politicos do about pop culture, because for culture critics, politics is part of our beach. Um, we write about it as spectacle and uh, as a disturbingly consequential form of entertainment. And we were doing that long before Trump came along to make our point for us. Everything about how the Trump White House operates was prefigured in The Apprentice. One reason Trump understood how to game the 2016 Republican primaries Was that, uh, you know, he looked around and saw 16 competitors and realized it might as well be another season of The Apprentice, you know, with himself as a contestant who understood how to play the game best. He treated those primaries as what Paniwazic calls a reality TV elimination show where, you know, you don't have to deal with substance. You deal with, you know, making impressions, belittling your rivals, and so on and so forth. It's all about personality.
1: Well, moving back in time, before The Apprentice, most of the pundits say Trump was a real estate mogul who promoted his businesses in the media. But you say that idea has it backwards, that Trump was already engaged, you say, in conquering the society of the spectacle. Please explain how that worked in his earlier days as a New York real estate tycoon.
2: To a large extent, Trump wasn't a real estate tycoon so much as he, he was someone playing the part of a real estate tycoon. And what Trump was ultimately selling all along was the idea of Trump, Trump the brand. And of course, one of the ways he came back from his multiple bankruptcies to keep him, keep the idea of Trump the brand alive was he used to pop up as a guest star on sitcoms and movies. And it was usually a trade off where if they wanted to shoot on a Trump property, they had to include a cameo by Trump as usually as Donald Trump. I mean, he can't play anyone else. <laughs> and that kept him in the public eye until The Apprentice came along. And TV looms large
1: in Trump's early life, his childhood, his teen years. What, what do we know about that?
2: Well, one of, one of the conceits of the Paniwazic book is that Trump and TV were born in the, at the same time. In 1946. And that's not quite literally true, but it's close enough. And uh, the two most formative experiences of Trump's childhood were both things he experienced by watching them on TV. One of them was Queen Elizabeth's coronation, which was the first time a coronation or any ceremony of that type had been broadcast on TV. And his, his father was disgusted with the whole thing, his mother was mesmerized and uh the other was pro wrestling on tv which the uh child donald trump apparently adored and of course it it became part of his uh adult life too not just you know that he sponsored wwe tournaments and things like that but also he took the lessons of pro wrestling to heart heroes and villains bullying and braggadocio and again an act that ultimately depends on personality and not actual skill.
1: In your piece on
2: the book by James Ponowazek, you write
1: about Trump's first ever appearance on national TV. I knew nothing
2: about this. No, no nor at I. It's another thing Ponowazek dug up. It was sometime in the 80s, and this was before the rise of cable and the rise of especially cable news. And in the days of the big three broadcast networks, The goal of TV was to be, you know, tranquilizing. One NBC executive came up with the phrase that the ideal thing to have on TV was what he called the least objectionable program, meaning the one least likely to make people change channels. And apparently in this early appearance, I mean, which I haven't seen going by Ponylotic's description of it, Trump is being interviewed on, I think, the, the Today Show. And it's a Trump we wouldn't recognize today because he is being the least objectionable Donald Trump. You know, he's he's calm, he's reasonable, he's trying to be genial without being overbearing. And that was the Donald Trump, it made sense to him to play on TV at the time.
1: So we wonder how Trump realized it would work better to do the opposite of being calm and authoritative, to be outrageous and provocative. Was it, was it Fox News and Roger Ailes who opened this uh, Pandora's box?
2: Not really, although certainly Fox News played a part in transferring Trump to the political realm because when the, once The Apprentice was on the air, Fox and Friends started to do a segment called Mondays with Trump where he would phone in and uh, start talking about politics. This is something that really surprised me. Roger Ailes and Fox News, they hadn't gone near birtherism in Obama's case. They hadn't hadn't touched it with a 10-foot pole until Trump started spouting off about it on his regular appearances on Fox and Friends. And just because Trump was a celebrity that gave them a sort of pseudo-legitimate reason to start treating birtherism as as legitimate news. And we all know how things spiraled from there.
1: Now, the confusing thing to me here is I can understand how cable news and especially Fox made Trump into this aggressive, polarizing, let us say, controversial figure, but reality tv the apprentice was not on cable it was on network tv which was supposed to be reassuring and and enjoyable how did this transformation occur for trump
2: the tv landscape changed so much in the 90s and early 2000s and of course reality tv was was something really new because instead of uh giving us neatly scripted stories with happy endings where nothing ever really changed. People didn't change, relationships didn't change, certainly in sitcoms. No matter what the storyline was about, you knew at the end of the day, the family or the Mary Richards news team, they'd all still be pretty much the same people they had been at the start. And reality TV, it actually got at all the stuff about competitiveness and rancor and god knows you know race and class and greed that scripted tv left out because it was the law of the jungle it basically told us life is a competition that only has one winner and even if you're a horrible human being that might actually be an advantage in winning a show like survivor that's one side of it and on the other hand the the cable part of this is cable news which attracted a smaller audience than the old uh, broadcast news shows, but also a much more partisan and uh, potentially virulent one. So instead of, you know, the soothing voice of Walter Cronkite, basically sending us to bed with the message that nothing too terrible for him to be able to reassure us about it had happened that day, cable news almost from the start, even before Roger Ailes uh, hyperbolized it people understood that cable news was all about contentiousness and bickering and alarmism just as the law of the jungle on reality tv was tailor-made for trump so the idea that cable news is all about partisan infighting and who can be the dominant personality who can be the gorilla in the room, that suited trump ideally too so you have these two seemingly unrelated. Shifts in the nature of TV that actually merge in the figure of Trump.
1: Last question. You talked about how Fox and Friends pioneered this Mondays with Trump segment back in 2011. Of course, Fox and Friends is back in the news now. Remind us of its present status in the White House.
2: Well, uh, (laughs) um, as Trump's policy coordinator, I guess you could say, or uh, shadow cabinet or... uh, Reassuring child psychiatrist, you can take your pick. What Wazick says is that Fox and Friends has become a morning children's show with an audience of one, the president of the United States. And the great twist Wazick puts on that is it also fulfills every child's fantasy that his favorite TV show is as aware of him as he is aware of it. And that is the real symbiosis of Trump and Fox and Friends. I mean, it's eerie. Imagine people on a show like that who know that every day Trump will be tuning in and that he is their most important audience and that whatever gibberish they come up with that day, he will treat as gospel truth and act on it.
1: Tom Carson wrote about Trump and TV for the new issue of Book Forum. Thank you, Tom. This was
2: great. Thank you very much, John.
1: Now it's time for Your Minnesota Moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Today, Ilhan Omar. Of course, she's the Somali Muslim immigrant woman who represents South Minneapolis in Congress. She just endorsed Bernie for president. For our report, we turn to David Perry. He's a historian and journalist whose work has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, The Washington Post, and The Nation. We reached him today in Minneapolis. David Perry, welcome to the program.
3: Thanks so much for having me on.
1: Since February, you have gone to almost every public appearance of hers in Minnesota. What have you learned from all that?
3: It's not that she isn't engaged with these hot-button issues, but when she puts her head down and just gets to work in the district. She's not talking about herself versus Trump. She's not uh, sort of counting herself up. She is uh, creating these events, just event after event after event, in which she brings a lot of people to the table. And whatever kind of spotlight is on her, she tries to put it on the other people, people who have things to say, people who have things to teach. And I just saw that again and again on on environmentalism, on um, racial disparities in women's health, on Medicare for all, on black business owners and tech. I mean, big, big national issues and highly local issues. That's just her pattern.
1: Let's talk about that That terrible day in July when Trump went after her at that rally of his in North Carolina and the audience chanted, send her back, a really nightmarish, uh, uh, evil event. She flew back to Minneapolis after that. What happened there?
3: She flies home and I get a Facebook message, not because I'm a journalist, but because I'm in touch with Minneapolis progressive communities saying, hey, uh, Congresswoman Omar's coming back. We're all going to meet at the baggage claim at the Minneapolis airport and welcome her home. And so I went out there, and there were a couple hundred people cheering and chanting, and she grabbed a bullhorn, and she, she did say some things about, uh, you know, that she did talk about Trump, and she said, you know, I'm not going to be intimidated, and he's afraid of the kind of the, the movement that we're building and the values we represent." And then what was so interesting to me is that she, she was there with um, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. They were going to do a town hall um, in, on Medicare for All in, in a South Minneapolis historically black neighborhood um, in the Sabathany Community Center, this really interesting place in an interesting neighborhood, kind of the heart of South Minneapolis. And so... I and I got to say a lot of other reporters, if you if you look, you'll see there were a lot of national stories filed that weekend by people who had just ducked into Minneapolis and then ducked out again. She gets on stage. There's this crowded room. There's almost no dissent. You you see reporters were crawling the room trying to find, you know, both sides naysayers. They're just not there. There's no protest there. There's just a community of people riled up, ready to support her. And she spent the next two hours carefully passing off the microphone to a very well carefully assembled uh, panel of experts to talk about the details of getting us to Medicare for all. So I think that really is a just a telling moment in who she is as a politician. Yes, yeah, she spoke about Trump at the airport, and yes, she she did say maybe... 25, 30 seconds at the very beginning of the event saying, yes, I know there's this terrible thing. Thanks for everyone's support. But she wants to get back to work. And that's the group of people she assembled. And that's really what we did. And I think a CNN report called it kind of boring and um, (laughs) boring. You know, sometimes the details are boring and the work of politics is boring. And she she was doing the work.
1: Uh, You say you've never seen a politician talk so little at town halls. Tell us about that.
3: You know, usually politicians want the spotlight, right? They want, yeah. they want people to pay attention to them, their message, their words. If they're inspiring you, they want to inspire you to be focused on them. That's part of what political charismatic leadership does. I, I don't have one of those clocks like, you know, CNN or The New York Times uses to count minutes at debates. Mm -hmm. But I am pretty sure that at every event I've been to, Ilhan Omar has not only spoken the least, but dramatically the least. (laughs) She gives her introduction, she has her panelists speak, and then she asks them questions, and they're prepared questions. They're they're questions that are calculated, like you, a good interviewer, to (laughs) draw out the best of the person who she's put up on this stage. And then she says thank you, and everyone cheers, and she leaves. And and that's real. And sometimes in the Q and A, she gets back into it a little bit. But she's really here to make sure that the people who want to listen to her also listen to the people that she listens to.
1: Let's talk about her relationship with the Jewish voters, some many of whom are in her district, and some of whom are in the neighboring uh, district. Tell us about what she did there. After those charges that she was anti Semitic, and after Trump tweeted she hates Israel, she hates all Jews.
3: Yeah, so this was, I thought, in some ways the most interesting part of our conversation, in which she told me for a while about how she tries to avoid community gatekeepers, how she's interested in locating people who might not otherwise be heard, and that's part of her strategy. And I really do think that backfired on her a little bit when she took office and started talking about Israel without really feeling that she needed to spend a lot of time consulting with local Jewish leaders and kind of having them explain to her how their constituency sees the world so that she can not not weigh in on an issue she thinks is very important in terms of of palestinian rights but that she can do so in a way that doesn't create unnecessary divides between her and people who might otherwise support her the jewish community in minneapolis and the suburbs um... she she represents St. Louis Park, which is a big Jewish community, and then her neighboring district is represented by a Jewish politician, Dean Phillips, um, and again, lots of Jewish constituents there. And just so everyone knows, I'm also Jewish, um, so I'm, I'm sort of from a secular Jewish background, uh, progressive in lots of ways, and that's pretty typical. These are people who want to support Palestinian rights, but who also want to make sure that Jewishness is not under attack. Um. So after that, that moment in February, she called lots of local Jewish leaders from within her district. There's a very progressive uh, synagogue in South Minneapolis that at least one of the rabbis there um, was involved, put together a call, and has in general, my sense, tried to stay more in touch with those particular voices, because she realizes that... Everything she says about Israel is going to quickly be run through a filter and interpreted not just by Trump, but by um, a lot of Jewish journalists um, who who are looking for this kind of narrative, interpreted in the worst possible light. And I think she has continued to make some mistakes around that. But also, I think um, you know, the the anytime she talks about Israel, anytime she talks about Palestine, uh, there's going to be a temptation on certain groups to interpret her in this way. So she's had to shore up, kind of intentionally shore up uh, her connections to local Jewish leaders.
1: And let's talk for a minute about her relationship with Dean Phillips, the congressman you mentioned who represents one district over, also a first-term congressman. He's Jewish. He's also not a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, uh, but he has worked with her privately and supported her uh publicly talk about her relationship with dean phillips
3: you know that's not something that i have sort of from her mouth what or i haven't talked to him either about what they've what they what they say about each other but i've read the public statements you know again after the all about the benjamin comment for which omar apologized phillips put out a statement saying i'm glad she apologized that was a mistake you know we're in good dialogue about it and then flash forward to august when Israel denies her a visa, and Phillips puts out a statement in support of Omar and in support of, of, her, sort of her focus on human rights in that region of the world. So I think, I think that's very telling. Um, there, is, there is an assumption that Jewish voters in this region, or at least slightly more conservative ones, may be turned to, off by her. But I guess I'm just not seeing that. I, I could go to every synagogue in town and talk to them about Ilhan Omar, and I might get some different narratives. But the people at her event, the public figures, the leaders here, you know, who are, who are within the, the, the left-to-center-left kind of sphere anyway, they just have not—they they are glad she apologized. They agree that she made some mistakes early on, and they're standing with her.
1: And her district, I know, is overwhelmingly Democratic. There's no chance that a Republican— is ever going to defeat her. But what about Dean Phillips? This had been a Republican district. Is he getting any heat for supporting her?
3: I have not seen any heat on that. There are two people who have announced they're running against him for the Republican nomination. Um, I looked at all their campaign materials. There's not a mention of Ilhan Omar in anything that I've seen that could change. There was, in April, an attempt to kind of use Omar as a wedge issue. The Norm Coleman, the former senator and mayor of St. Paul, led a group doing a, putting a couple hundred thousand dollars in digital ads in the region, um, really focusing on Omar um, and targeting people like Phillips. But that seems to have died down. So I guess we kind of have to wait and see. We're still over a year away from the, the election. Um, we don't know who the, Democrat, who the Republican candidate will be. My feeling is that the, the people who have declared so far are not the major contenders for that seat, but we'll see. It's definitely the kind of swing seat um, that will be important for control of the House in uh, 2020. So we'll just have to see.
1: Ilhan Omar has faced more intense attacks than just about anyone else in politics, and she's only been in Congress for a year. We know she gets a lot of death threats. She's had the crowd chanting send her back the Alabama GOP voted to expel her from Congress she's just at the beginning of her congressional career how does she handle the pressure
3: well she tells me and she tells other people too that she is totally fine um, that she has been through worse that she, you know her, her life experience coming as a refugee um, and then as a you know moving through multiple stages before reaching home here um, as a as a You know, her own experience trying to move through education and having kids and and, and those difficult times I think that many of us have, dealing with debt and trying to figure out what we want to do with our lives. You know, that, that sort of these words just aren't bothering her and that these attacks aren't bothering her. She told me in a very really kind of hilarious part of our conversation that... Within, within the Somali community, there's a lot of banter, sort of insult-related banter, so that all nicknames are kind of insulting, but friendly insults So hers is half-life because huh. she's tiny. And she just says she has a very thick skin. But she also is very clear that what worries her is not the... I mean, she's obviously taking care with her security. She has security detail. Her security is present at all of her events and on the street with her as she's moving. Um, so it's not that she's oblivious to the risks, but what seems to bother her emotionally is not the attacks on her but the ways that attacks on her may affect other people who identify with her other people who are um... in particular i think you know muslim immigrants women um, anyone wearing a hijab anyone who is muslim anyone who is who is um, african or african-american That the way that the attacks on her try to assert her status as other as not belonging here as someone who should be sent back It doesn't bother her, but it bothers her that other people may feel it, too, or that there could be, you know, even in Minneapolis, uh, another Somali school kid who is bullied by uh, people shouting, send her back to a kid. That that is the kind of thing that bothers her.
1: She has endorsed Bernie for president and her endorsement video tweet right now has something like one point two million views that suggests something about her significance
3: today, I think. I think that if you're interested in progressive politics, from whether you are a progressive or whether you're someone who hates progressive politics or or whatever, that she is one of the people who's going to be just a powerful figure in American progressive politics as long as she wants to be. Uh, She has this seat as long as she wants it. I don't know how long she wants it, I don't know what her long-term plans are, I don't think she may know. But she has the ability, uh, along with, in particular, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, to command a certain kind of attention from a big chunk of the left. And so we need to pay attention to, to her. I don't want people to just get the sense of her as this national polarizing figure with these big tweets, because again when I see her in the district, she's just doing a kind of really focused, constituent, issue-oriented work. Um, And that is what her politics seem to be all about.
1: David, Perry's report on Ilhan Omar appears in the new issue of The Nation magazine. You can read him at thenation.com.
3: Thank you, David. This was great. So nice to talk to you.
1: Now it's time for 20 Minutes Without Trump, a special feature of this program aimed to combat Trump fatigue. And so we turn to Pico Iyer to talk about Japan. He's the author of eight works of nonfiction and two novels. He started writing for Time in 1982. Today he's also a frequent contributor to the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, Harper's, and the L.A. Times. We've talked here about his books on the Dalai Lama and on Graham Greene. I think my favorite segment we did was about Peter Matheson going in search of the snow leopard in the Himalayas. Now he has a new book out. It's called A Beginner's Guide to Japan. Pico Iyer, welcome back.
4: I'm always so delighted to talk to you, John. Thank you.
1: Well, you have an amazing way of organizing your year. Tell us about that.
4: Well, as much as possible for the last 32 years, I've spent at least seven months of the year in Japan, um, around Kyoto and Nara, the two ancient capitals. I've spent all those 32 years um, there on a tourist visa, even though I have a Japanese wife and I could have a more official kind of visa. And then the other five months of the year, I travel around and sometimes come back here to California where my mother lives.
1: And in Japan, you live with your Japanese wife in what you call an anonymous suburb where no foreigners are seen. Uh, Tell us about that place. (laughs) Well, it couldn't be
4: more boring um, on the surface. So if you were to visit us tomorrow, you would see a completely modern, mock Californian suburb. Our apartment is entirely western, no tatami mats, no exquisite shoji screens. And the whole neighborhood was built in the 1970s, more or less, to look like Southern California. So all the buildings are Western style. All the streets are completely straight. Um, No temple, no shrine in the whole neighborhood. And even the two main drags are called Park Dory and School Dory, using those English names. As if to persuade my mostly elderly retired neighbors, they've arrived in a Japanese version of California. (laughs) But despite all those really Van Nuys-looking surfaces, it's deeply Japanese. And I love the way that Japan remains so much itself, even though it takes in features of everywhere else in the world.
1: Well, a lot of us think Japan has been coming less Japanese and more and more American ever since the end of World War II. Your own neighborhood there, you write in your book, has a McDonald's, a Kentucky Fried Chicken, a Mr. Donut, and a Starbucks, just like my neighborhood in West L.A.? (laughs)
4: <laughs> That's true, and I think a lot of my Japanese neighbors share that worry, but if you go into the McDonald's, um, you'll find them serving moon-viewing burgers last month in honor of the East Asian Festival at the Harvest Moon. If you go into the Starbucks, you'll be finding cherry blossom frappuccinos, and if you go to the baseball stadium there, you'll find that uh, games at a level after 12 innings end in a tie. So. Japan has taken the all-American pastime and made it entirely uh, Japanese. And I think even it's taken Colonel Sanders and turned him into a kind of samurai. He's wearing a kimono outside his outlet in my neighborhood.
1: Well, let's talk about baseball in Japan. We know... A number of important American players who started in Japan, Uh, we record our show in Los Angeles. One of the best Dodger pitchers is Kenta Maeda, who I read played for the Hiroshima Carp at Mazda Stadium. And there's also the former Dodger pitcher, Yu Darvish, now with the Chicago Cubs. He played for the Hokkaido Fighters. Tell us about baseball in Japan. It seems uh, like another part of the Americanization of what, what used to be a traditional culture. And
4: I think the operative word there is seems. Um, because, <laughs> but you're absolutely right. When I first moved to Japan in the late 80s, the striking thing was all the washed up elderly major league players here would go over there when they were 38 or 39 and lead the league in home runs. And I And most people never expected that soon it it would be going in the other direction, starting with Hideo Nomo coming um, here uh, for the Dodgers in the mid-90s. But uh, when you go to the ballpark in Japan, you'll find that the team that leads the league in home runs also leads the league in sacrifice bunts, sacrifice Hmm. bunts being a very important part of the Japanese game. And you will hear that one of the first times an American manager went to Japan to lead a team, which was Bobby Valentine in 1995, he took this really mediocre squad. He led them to this stunning second-place finish, and he was instantly fired. And many of us from abroad were surprised by this. Why was he fired? well said the team spokesman because of his emphasis on winning in <laughs> japan winning is like unsportsmanlike conduct it's disrupting the harmony of the place so really i would say that even baseball in japan becomes something very un-american where winning is not necessarily the main object
1: and what's it like to go to a game there
4: it's wonderful i would say that all the exciting action is in the stands more than on the field as you probably know japanese players a perfection. They're very good at executing everything perfectly, but the game itself is a bit dull because it's cautious and the teams are playing not to lose. But in the stands, you will see that there are 30 cheerleaders for each team. Mm. There are trumpets everywhere. The entire crowd stands up and executes a special dance and song for every player who comes up to the plate for as long as he's at the plate. Uh, they'll be playing La Cucaracha or the Mickey Mouse song or something very zany. And it's a wonderful counterpart to the rest of Japan, which is fairly shy and reserved and quiet, as you know. Get to the ballpark, and um, Japan lets its, uh, <laughs> its id out with a vengeance. Um, so I always recommend people, even if they have no interest in baseball, to go to a game while they're in Japan.
1: My sister spent several weeks in Japan. She's a dancer and a choreographer, and uh, she was amazed by the vending machines. Tell us about the vending machines.
4: The vending machines are everywhere. There are more per capita in Japan than anywhere else on Earth. So if you're walking down a deserted country lane or if you go to a remote temple on top of a mountain, you will find stands of vending machines uh, selling sometimes whiskey and condoms and X-rated paraphernalia as well as hot and cold tea, coffee, corn soup, you name it. And this often strikes us as surprising, but when you go to Japan in midsummer I'm not sure if that's when your sister was there, it is about 120 degrees with 150% humidity. And if you're going for a nice hike, you're so glad that somebody has had the sense to put um, a vending machine full of cool drinks there. And of course, the thing about Japanese vending machines is they're never out of the product you want. Everything you want is always right there, and and nobody vandalizes them. Uh, So... They can be entrusted in in the remotest parts and nobody will mess with them.
1: In the one part of Japanese culture that Americans are familiar with is anime, big force in American popular culture. What is it in Japan? Well, I
4: think anime is the perfect expression of an animist culture. And hmm. when we think of Japan, as you and I have been saying, we think about its modern Western post war services. But really, the longer I've been in Japan, the more I feel that it's um, this deeply traditional animist society. So if you were to meet my wife, who wears a black leather jacket and roars around on a motorbike and sells punk clothes, you might be surprised that um, she, she believes that every blade of grass, every tree, every pencil has a soul. And I think all Japanese believe that they're living in this charged network saturated with spirits in everything animate and inanimate. So anime, which to us is, is so striking, is to them a kind of realism. It's representing a world in which everything has life. If you see the great movies of Miyazaki for example, like Spirited Way or The Wind Rises, they've won he's won a couple of academy awards. He shows you, um, you know, drops of dew have a spirit, and that's magical to us. It's realism to the Japanese.
1: One of the most cloying things about Japanese stuff in the United States is the cuteness of all The consumer stuff that we see, the little bears, the little kittens, the little foxes that appear on backpacks and pens and cards, you describe a couple of ads on the train into Kyoto, which have some cute little bears and foxes, and you asked your wife what they were advertising. Tell us about that. (laughs) Yes,
4: they couldn't have been cuter, so I thought they were for a playground or kindergarten or something. And yet, my wife explained to me that these, these kawaii, as they're called in Japan, teddy bears, uh, were an ad representing um, the threat of child abuse and what number to call if you saw a child being ill-treated. And in some ways, it's just a kind of anesthetic to make everyone feel safer. But I agree with you. it's It's one of the stranger Japanese exports.
1: Well, I opened this by saying we were not going to talk about Trump, but it's time to return to our reality. Are there Trump-like figures in Japan now, the way there are in England and and other places? Is there anything in Japan like Donald Trump?
4: Well, there is the nationalist right-wing group who feel that Japan was ill-treated in the war and that it should reclaim its former glory. They're always very visible and audible. They drive around the towns um, in trucks, blasting out stuff through um, loudspeakers. And I think many Japanese would feel that Prime Minister Abe, who wants to rewrite the post-war constitution so that Japan is no longer committed to peace, is pursuing a much more aggressive policy than they would like. He's not in the same league as many of the demagogues we see around the world, but he's certainly not moving in the direction that many Japanese would like. Many people, like my wife, and I think most of my neighbors, are so proud of Japan's commitment to um, being a conscientious objector for all eternity, and really worried when Prime Minister Abe wants to rewrite things so that uh, the nation has an army again and is committed to aggressive action rather than peaceful.
1: Last question. You call your new book a beginner's guide. Who exactly is the beginner here?
4: (laughs) The beginner is me, so it's craftily mistitled. It's not aimed at the beginner, but it's written by somebody who for 32 years feels like a beginner in Japan. And maybe the one thing I'll say to end this is I wrote another book on Japan just four months ago called Autumn Light, which is an attempt to show how a Japanese neighborhood functions from day to day. And that's a much more kind of emotional, sensitive book about the interior of Japan. So one is very focused, and it tries to show how Japan is not so different at the human level from what you'd find in California. And the other is all over the place, and it it enjoys the many ways Japan is still so different from us.
1: Pico Ayer, his two books this year are Autumn Light and A Beginner's Guide to Japan. Pico, thanks so much for talking with us today.
4: Thank you so much, John. Always a delight to talk to you.
1: Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton, Ellen Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhoevel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. <laughs>